0: our Bibles now to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 through 12. As the months go on, I'll be speaking more about that, but I just wanted to throw out a a few things just so that you know what is happening. You could be excited about it and prayerful about it as we understand in the next season what it looks like to be in allegiance to Christ. That is the series that we're in. We're going through uh, the book of 1 Peter An entire book on what it means to change your allegiance, a change in allegiance. Peter wrote this book to a bunch of Christians scattered throughout what is now modern Turkey who are struggling with this conflict of two things. One, I am a believer and my citizenship is in heaven. But two, I live here in this place that hates Jesus and all of his values and what he stands for. So what does it look like to navigate that tension? Peter describes to them very simply what that looks like. That you are simultaneously called and sent To your area uh, of life. For many of you, it's Santa Barbara, Goleta, it's Isla Vista, maybe some other places, and yet you are not just sent there, you don't just have this sense of sentness there, but you are also set apart to be distinct, and those two combine together. They they, uh, collide together in the book of 1 Peter to describe the Christian life. This is your change in allegiance, and now Peter dips in to a couple verses that I want to highlight, and I'm just going to start reading them right now. This is 1 Peter 1, verse 10 through 12. And he says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time The Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he uh, predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is God's Word. Let's pray. God, I pray right now, and we pray together, that what so moved the angels in the heavenly realm to sit on the edge of their seats looking in at your redemptive display of the gospel, <clears throat> what so moved them to be caught up in what you're doing, would move our hearts today as well. As we see the mission of Christ in the pages of Scripture throughout the redemptive history of the world. Lord, we need that today. There's probably a handful of people in this building who are thinking about things. And their legitimate things, their needs, their difficulties, their trials. Areas of confusion and conflict. And you know how we are, Lord. In the weakness of our heart, we get buried under those things, big and small. God, I pray that you would dig us out. And pray that you would dig us out and expose us to the power of your good news. And that I pray that in that counterintuitive way that so often happens, that when we seek first the kingdom of God, all of these things are added to us. When we stop for a moment looking at our situation, we put our eyes on you. You actually begin to take care of our needs and fit them in a greater picture, and so I just pray for that today, what Paul would pray, that we would set our minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for we have died, and our lives are hidden with Christ in God. I pray that today, God, we would start from that place. Our lives are hidden in Christ. May they be hidden today in Christ, as we sit on the edge of our seats, looking in at what you are doing in and around us. In Jesus' name, amen. You might be here today, and perhaps you've picked up the Bible, opened it up, read it. You could be a Christian, have, have been a Christian for many years, or maybe you're not a Christian. You're just curious about the Bible. But perhaps you've had questions that are similar to this. Perhaps you've asked yourself, why is the Bible the way that it is? You know, there are parts in the Bible that I immediately gravitate to because they speak directly to me, and then there's other parts that are like, whoa, it's too much. Perhaps you love reading the New Testament because there's so many stories about Jesus and they're easy to digest. And it speaks and presents this God who's pretty loving and empathetic and compassionate, But you have a hard time with the Old Testament because it seems to be a different type of God. Maybe you read the Old Testament and you're like, that seems like a different type of God, like an angry one who smites you when you do something wrong. Or maybe it's not Old Testament versus New Testament. Maybe it's things within the Old Testament. Maybe you like love the Psalms because they're so inspirational and motivational and poetic, but then you turn to Obadiah and you're like, this, they're... uh, Israel is angry at Edom, I don't even know who Edom is or why they should be angry or what that has to do with my life. Maybe you jump around the Bible looking for that personal word, but you really have a hard time because so much of it seems disconnected from your life. Maybe you even go so far as to say, maybe you're not a believer and you have this hard time because believers, Christians, quote verses of the Bible to you. And they tend to quote the same, like, 12 verses of the Bible to you. But they never seem to quote the commands about not wearing mixed fabrics, like in Leviticus, or not eating shrimp. And you're asking yourself, why does the Bible, or why do Christians seem so inconsistent? Why does the Bible seem like a hodgepodge of so many different things? And I want to address your concern, because that is a legitimate concern. But, humbly, it usually those types of questions usually start from a fundamental misunderstanding of the Bible as a whole. A fault in the way that we approach it. We often approach the Bible as though it were a collection of arbitrary propositions and commands like a jar full of fortune cookies, you know? We just grab a verse and there's a line there that stands on its own that speaks directly to our life. But the Bible is not a collection of arbitrary propositions or commands. The Bible, this is my first point today, the Bible is first and foremost a story. It is an unfolding drama. It's a narrative of which we are a part. And that changes everything. Now, to be sure, the Bible does have a lot of propositions, you know, truth claims, and the Bible has a lot of commands, and we are to obey and heed those commands, but they are not disconnected commands. They do not stand alone by themselves, and they're certainly not arbitrary. They are a part of an unfolding story, and they find their greatest meaning. Sometimes they find all of their clarity, in some cases, when they're plugged into That bigger story. Right now, what Peter is saying, when he launches into verse 10, or uh, actually what he's doing, is he's attempting to do this for his listeners and for us. Plugging us back into a storyline. And he does this in a couple of ways. Number one, in verse 10, at the beginning of verse 10, he starts by saying, notice, concerning this salvation... If you were here last Sunday, we talked about that salvation in verses uh, in verses nine. Uh, excuse me, in verses three through nine, when Paul uh, Peter goes on to say, "You have been born again to a living hope, and because of that living hope, you have this inheritance. And even though you don't see Jesus, you love Him." And even though you don't see him now, you rejoice in him with a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. And because of that joy that is deep set in you, you are able to endure trials and suffering. And even uh, to that extent that you are experiencing that joy, those trials and suffering are actually not wasted. They're actually uh, deepening and strengthening your faith. And Peter is, is right there describing what salvation is in the life of the believers. And so right now, he's referring back to that. He's saying, remember what I was talking about when you got born again? When you got born again to a a new set of affections by the power of the Holy Spirit? When you got brought into a covenant relationship with your God? When you got brought into the kingdom of God by the hand of God, and now you have this future assurance that things are gonna be okay in the long run? Remember when I was talking about that? Then he goes on to say, at the end of verse 10, The prophets, when they were looking at that, when they were prophesying about that very thing, actually what he says is the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. When the prophets of old, and I just kind of added in brackets Old Testament because that's what Peter's talking about for ease of thought. When the Old Testament prophets were looking forward to what would happen to you, they were busy inquiring about something. Notice the connection that Peter is making between the New Testament and the Old. They're not two different books. They're one. The Bible is actually more like a library of God's story. And right now he's connecting the New Testament with the Old. It's beautiful what he's doing. What is happening today is not disconnected from Moses and Abraham and Isaac and Jeremiah. It is all a part of this unfolding drama and story. And it's a part of your story. You are included in the story that started in Genesis. You are a part of of, of one of its chapters. And even though particular situations and circumstances might not be exactly yours, the salient point is the story belongs to you, believer. He goes on to say that these Old Testament prophets were inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating. The Spirit of Christ, when Peter says that, he's, he's speaking about the Holy Spirit. So he could say it this way. The Old Testament prophets were inquiring what person or time the Holy Spirit in them was indicating. I love this for three reasons. One, it tells, that the, it tells us that the Old Testament writers were inspired by the Holy Spirit as they were writing. That means the Old Testament is the Word of God. Two, it means that even back then they were looking towards a day when there would be a new age, a new age in the kingdom. They were inquiring what person or time the spirit in them was indicating. And they assumed that it was the Messiah. It says that they inquired uh, what person or time that the spirit in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Jesus Christ and the subsequent glories. They saw this day coming. They saw a time when a Messiah would come. It's just that they didn't know what it looked like or when it would happen. And so they were inquiring according to the scriptures, according to their own contemporary Old Testament prophecies by the Holy Spirit. When is this Messiah going to come? What is it going to look like? And in what way is he going to suffer they're trying to put it together just in their little studies, like the geeks and nerds that they were just writing down, like, oh, how is this going to happen Jeremiah and Ezekiel? This is incredible. Just geeking out together. How is this going to, how is this going to happen? What is the story? How is this story going to culminate? They were looking for the time. When, when this says the sufferings of Christ, it's referring to his death. and his subsequent glories. It's referring to his resurrection and his triumph over evil, evil powers. The prophets were expecting that to happen. They were looking for the time and circumstances when Christ would make all things right. So my first point was that the Bible is a story. My second is that the story is all about Jesus and his mission. The Bible... Contrary to popular opinion, it is actually not a story that's primarily about you. This might come as a shock in your devotionals. And that's why we struggle sometimes when we read through parts of it and don't understand. Is because we're looking for it to be about our lives. God, am I supposed to take this job in Kansas? I will turn to the book of Ephesians and look. God, should I date him or her? I don't know. I can't hear your voice, Lord, so I will turn to Zephaniah. (laughs) And lo and behold, he says nothing about your dating life. (laughs) Because the Bible is not primarily a book about you. It's primarily a book about Jesus and his mission. But here's a counterintuitive, joyful part of that dynamic, is that when we see that and recognize it, it actually becomes a book for us. It's not about us, but it is certainly for us. And to the degree that we see in the Bible that it is about Jesus is the degree that we will experience our own personal joy. But it's primarily a a book about Jesus and his mission. Now, it doesn't mean that every text in the Old Testament is explicitly about Jesus, right? In fact, almost none of them are. It doesn't say Jesus anywhere in the Old Testament, It's that the Old Testament is a story, is what I keep saying. A story that leads and pushes us and propels us and culminates in the story of Jesus. How? Well, the whole thing from Genesis to Malachi is this deep, unraveling longing for a Messiah. And Jesus answers that longing. All the way, in specific instances, as far back as Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, when sin comes into the world and the curse through that sin and God utters one of the first prophecies, remember what he says, there will come a guy who will crush the head of the serpent. First prophecy of the Messiah. There will come a point where a guy, a special person, will come and he will crush the head of the serpent and he will release and reverse the curse. In books like Ruth, where we see glimpses of this kinsman redeemer, a person with the express obligation of redeeming a family from poverty and slavery. It's pointing to something else. In the book of Samuel, when we see uh, David and Saul and Solomon trying to be good kings and failing and having some success, this longing for someone to rule over God's people. We see it in the book of Kings when we see that Israel has had mostly bad kings because people are mostly bad. We see it in the prophet Isaiah when it says that there will be a day when the deaf shall hear the words of a book and out of their gloom and darkness their eyes will see and the blind shall see and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. We see it in Isaiah chapter 61 when we, say, when we see that the Messiah will come and he would be anointed to preach the good news to the poor. We see it in Jeremiah, and we see that a day will be dawning where God doesn't just shout to us external commands to obey, but he invades our heart by the Holy Spirit, causing us to delight in his commands. And over and over and over and over are these glimpses, this longing for a person to come and to rescue the nation of Israel. And Israel is really just a picture a living parable of humanity in general. This is our longing. But not all texts are explicitly about Jesus, right? Let me give you an example. This is a good one. Leviticus. You knew I was going to go there, right? (laughs) Chapter 11, verse 9 through 12. This is going to make all of you sad. But only if you like seafood. It says, These you may eat. Of all that are in the waters, everything in the waters that has fins and scales, whether in the seas or in the rivers, you may eat them. But anything in the seas or the rivers that does not have fins and scales, of the swarming creatures in the waters and of the living creatures that are in the waters, it is detestable to you. You shall regard them as detestable. You shall not eat any of their flesh, and you shall uh, detest their carcasses. You know what he's saying? Stop eating shrimp. That's in the Bible. Really bummed about that because I don't detest shrimp. I love shrimp. <clears throat> Furthermore, there's nothing in there. You might look at that and you'd be like, this has nothing to do with Jesus. In fact, Jesus would hate this passage. <laughs> now, it's true, not all texts like this one explicitly speak about Jesus, but remember, when you approach the Bible as more than just a bunch of disconnected proof texts and as a story, And the entire story being about Jesus, all of a sudden, even the weirdest texts point towards Jesus to the degree that they move the storyline forward. How does the anti-shrimp law move the story forward? (laughs) Well, you have to back up for a moment out of the mess of Leviticus 11 to see the mess of Leviticus as a whole. This is generally when we do a one-year Bible reading, the part, you, you know, in March and April when people kind of fall off. And they're like, God is calling me to something else. <laughs> because Leviticus is so hard to read without that understanding. Leviticus theme is really all about purity. This is what's going to make sense of things like the anti-shrimp law. Leviticus is all about purity. And it's a part of a chapter of a bigger story. In that story, God redeemed Israel out of uh, bondage to Egypt and created out of them a people for his own possession where he could dwell in their midst. And so Leviticus is actually answering an unspoken question of Exodus. How in the world can sinful, rebellious people have a holy God dwell in the midst of them? A God who is so holy that the author of Hebrews described him as a consuming fire. How can Sinful people dwell with a holy God without being consumed by the fire of his holiness. Leviticus is written to answer that question. And the first seven chapters are all about sacrifices for sin. And there are different compartments all over Leviticus, uh, chunks and uh, 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 sections and uh, chapters that are put together to answer this question of purity. Purity. The purity of God's people and it all usually has to do with them being separated in some way. And so there's that language of being clean and unclean. And there are parts of Leviticus that have to do with priests and there are parts of Leviticus that have to do with moral purity and all of this stuff. But chapters 11 through 15 are a specific set of commands that have to do with outward uh, cleanliness and purity. To put it in the words of one author, Tim Mackey, he said uh, chapter 11 through 15, where the shrimp is, is an elaborate set of cultural symbols that reminds Israel that God's holiness was supposed to affect all of their lives. It was supposed to be a reminder to them and a visual uh, message to outside nations, that when they lived differently, uh, it was supposed to mean something. And so other cultures would look in and see a visible representation of Israel's distinctive lifestyle. But it was never supposed to be about that outward conformity. That was supposed to be a sign of what was happening on the inside in the heart. And the Old Testament prophets would make great pains to remind God's people of that and foretell a day when the heart would actually be changed so that the outward conformity would match what was going on on the inside. And Jesus comes along on the scene and he doesn't do away with that. He actually affirms it. In Matthew 15, 10, he calls the people to him and says, hear and understand, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person. In other words, it's not what you eat that makes you sinful. It's what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. And he's not talking about regurgitating the food. But he clarifies in verse 18. He says, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. Okay, It's not the food you eat or the practices that you have or the religious observances that you carry, it's actually what comes out of your heart. That defiles the person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands doesn't defile anyone. See what he's doing right there? He's referring to the hand-washing, clean and unclean laws of Leviticus. He is doing away with that outward expression to go deeper into the heart. And so now in the church age, we are still, the the theme of Leviticus is to be set apart in holiness. That is still the same today. Only we are now set apart by a God-given ability to know and love him and to live in true and authentic holiness. So can you eat shrimp? Well, yes you can, if you like shrimp. And we can because there are actually specific New Testament passages in the New Testament, which is what I just said, that overturn those food laws. Matthew 15, verses 10 through 20. Acts 10, verses 15. Romans 14, verses 14 through, uh, and 20. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 25. Titus chapter 1, verse 15. 1 Timothy 4, verse 4, to name a few. <clears throat> this always brings up the question, well, if we don't, If we can eat shrimp now and wear mixed cotton clothes, what about the laws in Leviticus about sexuality? Did God do away with those as well? Can we just have a free-for-all? The answer to this question lies really in what Jesus and his apostles said. Jesus is the best exegete of Scripture, right? And with some of those passages in the Old Testament, like, Washing your hands, not eating certain foods, cleanliness, all of that stuff that he speaks about in purity. Jesus and Peter and Paul all, in various places, actually do away with food laws. However, Jesus, Peter, and Paul all also affirm the Old Testament sexual ethic, and they ground it in the image of God in the covenant of marriage. And so you have Jesus. If you want to know, like, hey, how do I be consistent with Scripture? The best thing to do is interpret it through Jesus. What does he say? What does Paul say? What does Peter say? What does James say? And what we see them saying is, you can eat shrimp now, but stop sleeping with your girlfriend. Okay? He's very clear that food laws are gone, but the sexual ethic is still there. <clears throat> Leviticus and even the the anti-shrimp law is really simply about God wanting his people to be set apart. And Christ comes in on the scene to ultimately fulfill that very thing. The salient point here is that the Old Testament is a story that finds its resolution and fulfillment in one person, Jesus Christ, to, to which even the shrimp laws push the story forward and towards. It's a story that is longing for the Messiah to make all things right. And in addition to the whole story, lurching forward to find Jesus, there are also explicit symbols. Like right now, you might be saying, yeah, this is, I can see where you're going with that, but it's also ambiguous, but there are actually explicit symbols in the Bible that point towards Jesus in the Old Testament, explicit characteristics that are personified by Jesus, special agents of God that carry out roles that would later be fulfilled more fully by Jesus Christ. It's all over the Old Testament. Let me just give you an example of some of them in every single book of the Bible, starting with Genesis. In Genesis, Jesus is that seed of the woman that crushes the head of the serpent. In Exodus, he is the true Passover lamb. That allows death to roll over us unscathed because God has covered us from, uh, from our own sin. In Leviticus, he is, the major, uh, he is the ultimate atoning sacrifice for our sins. In Numbers, he is the cloud and the fire that guides us when we don't know where to go. He is the rock that was smitten for the rebellious people. And he is the one hanging from a pole. In Deuteronomy, he is the faithful prophet that speaks God's word most truly. In Joshua, he is the captain of the Lord of hosts. In Judges, he is the divine deliverer. In Ruth, he is the... Kinsman Redeemer, man. In first Samuel, he's the anointed one. In 2 Samuel, he's the son of David. In 1st and 2nd Kings, he's the reigning king. In first and second Chronicles, he's the builder of the temple. In Ezra, he's the faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, he's the rebuilder of the walls. In Esther, he's the preserver of a nation. In Job, he is the dawning of a new day, the dew that falls from heaven, and the morning. In Psalms, he is the shepherd and the praise of Israel. In Proverbs, he's the wisdom of God and in Ecclesiastes he's the great teacher excuse me for a minute oh don't clap I'm just halfway done In Song of Solomon, he is the fairest of 10,000. In Isaiah, he's the suffering servant. In Jeremiah, he's the weeping prophet. In Lamentations, he is our portion. In Ezekiel, he is the very manifest glory of the living God. In Daniel, he's the son of man that rides in on the clouds of heaven. He's also the fourth man in the fire unscathed, and he's the one who shuts the mouth of lions. In Hosea, he's the lover of the unfaithful. In Joel, he is the one who baptizes us in the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. In Amos, he's the cultivator of the land. In Obadiah, that weird small book of the Bible, he is our Savior. In Jonah, he's the resurrected one. In, in Micah, he's the messenger with beautiful feet. In Nahum, he's the avenger of God's elect. In Habakkuk, he's the great evangelist crying for revival. In Zephaniah, he's the righteous branch. In Haggai, he's the true beauty of God's dwelling place. In Zechariah, he's the pierced son. And in Malachi, he is the son of righteousness that rises with healing in his wings. The whole Old Testament is all about Jesus Christ. Amen? pictures of Jesus are all over the Old Testament because the Old Testament is all about Jesus I guess if I cover the Old Testament I probably should cover the New Testament because the Old Testament prophets inquired about the time that this would all culminate they were longing for a person to appear who would answer all of these things And then there were 400 years of prophetic silence until one day a little baby was born. And the New Testament writers, after observing his life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension, begin to write about him as the fulfillment of God's story. And they wrote, giving him titles and putting things upon him and identifying him as the end and culmination of the old testament story and therefore the longing of the whole world and the longing of santa barbara <coughs> the gospel writer matthew wrote about him as the messiah the one who comes wrote about him as the son of david the son of god the king of the jews the bridegroom in mark <coughs> he wrote that he was the holy one of god the servant the king of israel in luke He wrote that he was the son of man, that Jesus was the Lord of the Sabbath, the horn of salvation, the consolation of Israel. John wrote that he was the son of God, the only begotten son of God, the lamb of God, the bread of life, the light of the world, the I am, the door of the sheep, the good shepherd who leads the sheep through the door, which is also who he is, the resurrection and the life and the true vine. Acts wrote, Luke wrote in Acts that he was the ascended Lord, the one who sends the Holy Spirit, the prince of life, the judge of the living and the dead, the just one, the hope of Israel. Paul wrote in Romans that Jesus was the believer's righteousness, the just and the justifier, the rock of offense, the deliverer, the Lord of the dead and the living and the root of Jesse. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians that Jesus was the last Adam coming to do the job that the first Adam failed to do. In 2 Corinthians, he wrote that Christ was our all-sufficiency. In Galatians, he's the one who sets us free for the sake of freedom. And in Ephesians, he's the one who is filled with all heavenly riches and treasures, the head over all things and the cornerstone. In Philippians, he is the Christian's joy, the name above all names, the one who meets our every need. In Colossians, he is the fullness of deity dwelling in bodily form, the image of the invisible God, the head of the body, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead and the hope of glory. In 1 Thessalonians, he is the soon-and-coming king. And because he is the soon-and-coming king, he's also our believer's comfort. He is the believer's comfort. In 2 Thessalonians, he is both the Lord of peace and the glory that dwells in the midst of God's people. No longer a temple. In 1 Timothy, he is the mediator between God and man. He is also the Christian's preserver and the king of ages. In Second Timothy he is the rewarder. In Titus he is the blessed hope. He is the great God and savior. In Philemon he is the friend who comes closer than a brother and he is a substitute for those who have never found that type of friend. In Hebrews he is the blood that washes away our sins. He is the heir of all things. He is the faithful high priest. He is the author and finisher of our faith. In James he is the lord of glory, the judge at the door, the giver of wisdom. In First Peter he is the rock and he is the chief shepherd. In Second. Peter, he is the morning star and the precious promise. In 1 John, he is the life. In 2 John, he is the truth. And in 3 John, he is the way. In Jude, he is the one who is able to keep you from stumbling, the one who presents you blameless before the Father, the one to whom all glory, majesty, dominion, and authority are attributed. And in Revelation, he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The whole Bible is about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And the de- to the degree that your heart sinks itself into that, stops reading it merely for intellectual fodder or a personal boost and sees it as the pathway to experience Christ and to hear his words. So will your freedom lie? You will say, as the disciples did, where else should we go, Lord? You alone have the words of eternal life. The Bible is all about Jesus. <clears throat> One day is when Jesus rose from the dead, we see this very effect sinking into the heart of a few men and women. As Jesus rose from the dead and <clears throat> disappeared. Even after he died, even after he rose, even after he and all the prophets spoke about this time that it would happen. The disciples were still bummed. They're still confused, and they were walking on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter twenty-four when some dude appears next to them incognito. It's Jesus. But they don't know it, and so he's asking them questions. (laughs) He asks them the funniest questions, too. Like, hey, what's been happening in Jerusalem this week? (laughs) So awesome. And they go on to express their disappointment that things did not work out the way that they thought. Even they were reading the Bible through their own lens. And Jesus responds. And he says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Listen to this. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, a, a key phrase referring to the Old Testament, Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning themselves. Jesus had perhaps one of the greatest Bible studies that has ever happened. And he walks them through the Old Testament, showing how all of it is about him. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sights and they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? When they recognized and saw Jesus in the word of God, their hearts began to come alive. Brothers and sisters, do your hearts burn in that way? Are your hearts burning with that same longing not only just that, not only the same longing, but that, that sense that your appetite is about to be satisfied in another person. Do you look at the scriptures with that that sense of Awe. <clears throat> the Bible is a story. The story is about Jesus. and that story was written for you. In the words of the Apostle Peter, it was revealed to the Old Testament prophets that they were serving not themselves, but you. It means, first of all, among other things, that because the prophets had been looking to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ from centuries prior. What Peter is saying is that Jesus' death was not a tragic accident. It wasn't just something awful that happened outside of God's control. It was all a part of God's plan. It means on a more personal note that your trials are not a tragic accident that God wasn't just like sleeping at the wheel when you ran into that you know awful conflict or drama that happened yesterday and He woke up to all of your trials going, oh no, I didn't know that was going to happen. Well, plan B, it's going to be okay. It means that God is in control of the sweep of history and he is moving it towards his own ending. And even your trials and tribulations and sufferings and disappointments and setbacks are even in themselves, even though they are awful right now, even God, God is even able to take those and weave them into a story that involves changing you into the likeness of his son. Nothing is wasted in the life of a Christian. So beautiful is the gospel. And I want to give us a definition of the gospel right now before we close. It is the good news, it is an announcement that the kingdom of God has been made available in Christ for the renewal of all created things, yourself included, whereby putting our faith in his death and resurrection, we can be transformed into his image. So beautiful is this gospel story that God has been weaving together since Genesis. Genesis. That Peter even ends by saying, even the angels long to look at how it's going to turn out. It wasn't just the prophets inquiring, going, I wonder what this this is going to turn out to be. Even the angels, who sit in the presence of God, seem to be on their tiptoes, going, what is God doing with people? I don't know if you know about angels, but they're cooler than us. Psalm chapter 8, verse 3 through 5 says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? What is the son of man that you care about him? And yet you have made him a little lower than the angelic beings. And yet you have crowned him with glory and honor. You are meant for glory and honor. And angels, who are so much cooler than we are, are baffled by how much God loves people. How much God loves you. How his love was so driven, how he was so driven in his love for you. That he told a story over the course of thousands of years in order to sweep you into it and thereby sweeping you into his arms. The story is being told. The question that you have to face today, as I call up the worship team and we transition into song, is will you accept it as your story? It's already my story. For many of you in this room, it's already your story too. But some of you are on the outside looking in, and you're you're closing yourself off to it. You say, that's a great story. But there are parts of it that I don't like. There are things about me that I know Jesus will want me to let go of if I jump into this story. You're saying all sorts of stuff like that. Stop. If God can do so much to change the course of history and every individual in that history... Can't you trust him with those little things that he might call you to leave aside? Will you accept the Bible's story? And what the Bible presents to you is Jesus. Will you accept Jesus? Not just as a buddy, and not even just as a savior, but as your Lord and as your king. Will you drop your sense of independence? This lie that Santa Barbara tells us that in order to be truly happy, we have to live for ourselves, and to be true to ourselves, garbage. Your truest sense of freedom is by giving up your own life, a famous person once said, in order to find it in Jesus. Are you ready to do that? Will you accept his claims upon your life and thereby find freedom? Perhaps he's calling you to surrender something. Perhaps he's calling you to give something up. Perhaps he's not calling you to do anything but to sit at his feet and gaze. Whatever it is that he's inviting you to do right now, I just want to charge you to accept that invitation. Pray these things, that your will would be done in Santa Barbara as it is in heaven, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.